This is part two of Royally Flush. If you haven't listened to part one yet, please head back and listen now. Previously on Human Resources. You see in Bristol throwing into the water of the statue of Edward Colston. What we always need to remember is he was the deputy governor of the Royal African Company. The governor was the king. It was a royal company. By the time Charles II takes the throne after his father has been executed and the English Civil War and all of that, he is absolutely committed to involving not only England in the slave trade, but the crown itself. So this is how the Royal African Company becomes embroiled in the slave trade and was literally led from the very top by our monarchy. Enslaved people are branded to show that they are the property of this royal company. In some cases, with the initials of individual royals. DUI for the Duke of York, and then other brands that make it very clear that the monarchs are actually not just involved in this company behind the scenes, that they're actually putting their mark on the bodies of enslaved people. We've seen quite a few institutions who recently have begun to acknowledge their historical ties to slavery. This is not something the current British royal family seem to have done. And to not acknowledge that and to not talk about that at a moment when everyone is talking about this, I think it's a very poor move on behalf of the Crown. I'm Moya Lothian McLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history and my own past at the same time. This is Human Resources. Daybreak on April the 7th, 1760, Easter Monday morning. A recently captured slave named Taki from the coastal region of West Africa, aka modern-day Ghana, has gathered his followers in Port Maria, Jamaica, after weeks of planning. On his command, they begin to advance on the sleeping planters and the estates where they have been forced to labour to the point of death. Within 24 hours of this initial attack, Taki, who was leading the revolt, had garnered the support of other rebellious slaves, and the numbers had reached the hundreds. Taki and his followers were able to overpower British forces with surprising speed to gain weapons and ammunition. Before this, even though there had been a few uprisings previously, the plantation networks within Jamaica had been relatively peaceful due to a treaty the British had made with the Maroons the free black population, made up of escaped slaves. As Taki's rebellion gathered pace, the British began fighting back with the help of a few maroon groups who were obliged to assist the British in suppressing uprisings and recapturing runaway slaves due to their treaty. For every slave recaptured or killed, the maroons were paid seven and a half pence a day, just under 15 pounds in today's money. The British officers were awarded two shillings and six pence. A shilling was the equivalent of 12 pence. So the officers made just under 63 pounds in today's value, which was over four times what the Maroons were paid for the same awful task. This rebellion lasted five days, resulting in over 1,000 deaths of enslaved people and is known as Tacky's Revolt or Tacky's War. The legacy of this specific fight was hard to shake. For the British, the revolt cost an estimated £15,000 to suppress, with over £100,000 worth of property damage. That is just over £3 million and £21 million today's currency, 
which is a serious amount of cash. The revolt also planted a seed within the enslaved that rebellion was possible and for the enslavers that they could be overpowered. I'm once again joined by author and Associate Professor of History at Virginia Commonwealth University, Brooke Newman, to investigate the British monarchy's links to the slave trade. In part one, a theme that kept cropping up again and again in exploring Britain's slaving history is the resistance of the enslaved. This played a huge part in getting the Crown to re-evaluate the benefits of the slave trade and to not block abolition. Often we speak about abolition as if it were one day gifted to the enslaved, when in reality, black Africans resisted being enslaved every single day, in hundreds of different ways. It sounds as if that resistance essentially pushed George III into starting to consider abolition, which he would eventually sign partially into law in 1807. I think that if it's not for resistance, and if it's not for the actions of enslaved people themselves, that the abolition movement would not have been as successful and that emancipation would not have been granted during the 1830s. Because it's far worse from their perspective, from the Crown's perspective, to lose these colonies completely than it is to contemplate winding down reliance upon the transatlantic slave trade, which has, over time, lost favor among the British public because of the abolitionist campaign and because of all of the dissemination of all of these different materials, these anti-slavery materials, such as the diagram of the slave ship, the Brooks, which for the first time introduces the British public to a visual representation of hundreds of African people crammed into the hold of a ship in a very shocking and visceral manner. It has an enormous impact and it does help to spread the word of the abolitionists and get people to sign petitions which are sent into parliament in the late 1780s and early 1790s. But despite that, despite public opinion, George III is less moved by that than he is by the thought that he could lose these colonies. But ultimately, George III isn't swayed enough that he actually actively supports abolitionist efforts. So who were the pro-slavery voices that had his ear? He's more persuaded by the West India lobby. The people who are involved in the West India lobby have a lot of money. They have a lot of influence. There are many members of parliament as well that have ties to the plantation colonies and people who throughout British society that are just benefiting financially from slavery, even if they've never been to Jamaica or Barbados, like they have family inherited wealth tied up in the slave trade. And after the American Revolution, George III spends a lot of time musing about the rights of his subjects. And he's very concerned about their property rights because he knows that he angered the Americans. I mean, he still sees them as ungrateful, they're rebellious subjects. He was this benevolent father figure and you know they got rid of him. And so he does not view that in any way reflective of mistakes that he made. But he is thinking about, at least his notes suggest, that he's thinking about the fact that these people in the Caribbean colonies in particular, the planters, our British subjects, 
They've invested a lot of money in slavery. Many of them, their wealth is completely wrapped up in not just having plantations, but in a large labor force of enslaved people, hundreds and hundreds of enslaved people worth lots and lots and lots of money. And he's worried that if he supports the end of the system, they will lose all of this money and all of this property. And he sees his role as monarch, as uh, someone who's supposed to respect and protect. It's so telling of the fact that these thousands of enslaved Africans shipped to the British Empire were not seen as subjects who are also entitled to those same rights. I think that is a legacy that we can see very strongly in the 20th century, when you had the likes of Caribbean and West African people who'd grown up their whole lives being told that they were British subjects of this benevolent country with its ancient and proud monarchy, migrate to the UK and discover that they were viewed as subhuman and certainly not treated as equal members of British society. I also want to dig into the mindset of Prince William, the Duke of Clarence, who later becomes William IV. He was very pro-slavery, wasn't he? And got actively involved with the campaign. He is the only member of the royal family who served in the Navy during the 18th century. He actually, during the 1780s, as a teenager, visited a number of the Caribbean islands. He's sailing around, he is witnessing slavery firsthand. He's becoming chummy with members of the Jamaica Assembly. They are actually writing letters praising him. And he comes back to England and believes he has special insight as an eyewitness on the ground who has viewed slavery and slave conditions. And he, when he becomes the Duke of Clarence and joins the House of Lords, ends up involving himself publicly in the slavery debates that are occurring as a result of the abolitionist movement. And what he argues in the House of Lords is that this system is not unjust, that actually it's not that different from labor relations in England and that the treatment of slaves is fair And you have to take into consideration that he was in the Navy and he saw, and this is in his letters that survived, he saw soldiers, sailors being whipped. And he talks about this, about the punishment that people received in the Royal Navy, and then he compares it to slavery and essentially says that it's not that different. Slaves are being treated this way. This is not that different from what sailors and soldiers have to put up with. And really, this has all been overblown by the abolitionists. So the Duke of Clarence publicly speaks in favour of slavery in the House of Lords. How does that go down? I think at the time, this was seen as pretty shocking that a member of the royal family is making this pro-slavery argument in public. It's being published and He's not maintaining a kind of cool distance between, you know, the royal family and the debates. And this is at a time when public opinion is turning against the pro-slavery faction. And also at a time when the West Indian planters are being caricatured and lampooned in the press as people who are un-English, who are debauched, who are selfish and cruel, who too are actually representative of the worst excesses 
of the British national character. And now you have someone who is second in line to the throne who is aligning himself with this group. And then there's his brother, the Duke of Gloucester, who claims in later life to be a fervent abolitionist. Is that true? He does play a role behind the scenes in an interesting way during the 18-teens. And so before the Abolition Act is passed, I think the abolitionists are really banking on public support and public outrage. And this is very successful to help put pressure on parliament to also demonize the West India interest. It's successful. But after the Abolition Act is passed, there's about a decade where a lot of the dealings are going on behind the scenes. There's sort of gentlemanly connections and meetings happening. And so the Duke of Gloucester is helping to write letters of introduction, for example, for abolitionists, so that someone like Thomas Clarkson can meet with the Tsar of Russia in 1815. Prince William Henry was the Duke of Gloucester at this time, and brother to Prince William, Duke of Clarence. Lots of Williams. And the other thing that he did was try to influence the Prince Regent, so the future George IV, to put pressure on Louis XVIII to try to work with Britain to end the African slave trade. And so there are things happening behind the scenes and members of the royal family influencing one another, but it's really not until that crucial in-between phase between the abolition of the slave trade and emancipation that the crown itself seems to be more receptive to not just abolition, but any kind of anti-slavery efforts. George IV, I find to be an interesting character because he was not very serious when he was Prince Regent. He was always in debt. He was always mocked by the press. He had a very contentious relationship with his father because he was spending so much money and was seen as in some ways just a disgrace. And when his brother, the Duke of Clarence, was giving speeches in the House of Lords that were pro-slavery, I found notes where George is essentially laughing about this. And he's corresponding with his brother about like, I heard you gave this incomparable speech and this was amazing and all this stuff. And so he's not in any way a supporter of the abolitionist movement. I mean, and he's laughing about it, essentially. But by the 18-teens, here he is claiming to Louis XVIII that it would be this enormous, wonderful thing if they could remove this odious stain on you know, humanity by eradicating the slave trade. And so he's presenting himself in a completely different way a decade later. Full abolition arrives in 1837, the same year as Queen Victoria, who is Elizabeth II's great-grandmother. Does this mark any change in the British monarchy's relationship to slavery? Really, the royal family still doesn't officially embrace anti-slavery in any meaningful way until 1840. And that is when London has the first anti-slavery convention. And all of these anti-slavery activists, including a number of free Blacks, descend upon London to attend this major event to try to push for anti-slavery and in an international sense. And Prince Albert is invited to introduce the ceremonies and to open the ceremonies. And he comes, and this is only you know, four months or so after he's married Victoria, and he gives his first ever speech as her husband publicly. And there are eyewitness accounts of this, and people were crying in response to the speech that he gives, just because in their minds, finally, 
the royal family has officially embraced anti-slavery in a public way. But this is at the same time that people from India and China and Indonesia are signing these contracts and are starting to pour into during the 19th century to replace the African slaves on um, the Asians. And this is not slavery. This is a contractual labor system, but it is deeply coercive and exploitative. I mean, these are people who are promised certain things that they do not receive once they arrive. The system is awful in the 19th century and lasts for a very long time. And many people suffer as a result of this continued coercive system and the fact that people who were enslaved in the islands are not given anything when they're freed. And so they're just, they're freed. They have no support. They have no property or land. They have extremely difficult time of becoming active citizens because they're still being oppressed by the minority whites who govern these colonies and who dominate them in, in all meaningful ways, financially, socially, and politically. And so the system that is set up in the 19th and into the 20th centuries is one in which all of the majority populations who are of African descent or of Asian descent are marginalized. Many of them are not able to even vote until the 20th century. So the conditions that are created are conditions that in some ways are designed to lead to maximum long-term suffering. In many ways, the idea of hereditary monarchy is built on the same foundation as chattel slavery, that you are born into your place, whether to rule or to serve. In some ways, I'm not sure we've ever shaken that off in the British class system. In the context of a slave society, you have masters who are the heads of households over their dependents. And this would include dependent children, indentured servants, any other workers, but also the enslaved who are not just commodities and members of their household, they're also people who are supposed to obey given the hereditary nature of this society and the fact that this is a very hierarchical society. And this supports these ideas about inheritance, not only support the monarchy, because the monarchy is based on these concepts and rooted in the concept of the divine right of kings and that everyone has a place in this society and should follow and obey the instructions of those who are directly superior to them. So there was no reason why the Stuart monarchs, for example, would have been opposed to the idea of slavery. It really aligned with the way they thought about the world and about their place in it. But what I talk about in my book, which is about inheritable blood and how this relates to slavery, is really the idea that when colonists move overseas, and try to create essentially new English societies, and particularly in places like the Caribbean where they are the minority population over time, and the demographic dominance is really people who are enslaved and of African descent. They articulate arguments about the fact that even though they're not living in England, some of them have not been born in England, they still have inherited the rights of English subjects and that they actually have as many rights and privileges as people living in metropolitan England and that they've inherited these rights through blood. 
And so what's really fascinating is that free people, I'm talking particularly about Jamaica because that was what my book was about, they recognize these arguments and they start making them themselves. And this is in the 18th and early 19th century. And what they argue, and this is in petitions that they submit to the crown and others, they say, you know, we have also inherited English blood. And so we are technically owed equality under the law in the same way that all of these white English subjects are as well. And so they're using this idea of blood and inheritance and trying to turn it around and use it to their advantage, despite the fact that many of them have inherited English blood through illegitimate, illicit relationships and coercive sexual relationships between white men and enslaved women. And they point to this and talk about how essentially they are an entire population born of these horrible abuses that have occurred as a result of Englishmen, white men, unable to control their sexual desires. I mean, this is the result. And so at the very least, you owe us rights and equality, given everything that you've done and all these atrocities that you've committed. Now we're left in this very long shadow of this history, where it impacts the lives of millions every day, but it goes mostly unacknowledged and unaddressed. In my mind, you can't begin to build a society where people have true equality and equity until you've actually confronted the past and the conditions that lead to, say, half of black African Caribbean households in Britain being in poverty in the present day. So, where does the crown go from here? That to me is why there are calls for not just acknowledgement and an apology, but for reparations. And particularly from CARICOM, which is the Caribbean organization that is trying to lead the charge to ask the British government for reparations, they're pointing to not this historical injustice that occurred and showing that this is not just what happened during the era of slavery, which was horrible in and of itself. It's what you as a nation chose to do after slavery came to an end. You compensated the slaveholders. You continue to allow us to not be able to participate as equal subjects, to not be able to vote, to not have the same rights and privileges as British subjects, which is all they wanted was a fair shot um, and to be treated as equal subjects. British slave owners were compensated £20 million when slavery was officially abolished. In contrast, as Brooke says, when the enslaved are freed, they were provided with no compensation, no infrastructure, no property, zero. And then as many people have been talking about in the UK now with the Windrush scandal and everything else, when people from the Caribbean were asked to fight for Britain or relocate to Britain and saw Britain as the mother country that they were part of, they were treated horribly and were always treated as second-class citizens and were never, ever treated as full and equal subjects. And so there's no surprise to me that there are people who are angry, who want to see, you know, an apology and that that it's not just lip service and it's not just some random um, comment about how the Queen supports Black Lives Matter but won't say anything officially. I thought that was very intriguing that there is this public announcement that, yes, the Queen supports this. She supports the Black Lives Matter movement, but she will not acknowledge 
the role of her ancestors in involving England in the slave trade, in creating an English empire supported by slavery, in the transportation of approximately 3.4 million enslaved Africans to the New World. I find it really shocking that she would think that that is acceptable, frankly insulting to anybody of African descent. I'm left with many questions about Britain and whether the monarchy can ever really take a role in leading us towards reconciling with our collective past when they can't even confront their individual history. What's clear is how Britain has been shaped by the deep-rooted ideas about inheritance and divinity, from those we're told are born to rule and those who are made to serve. I think these still lie latent in most of us on some level, even if we aren't conscious of it. Otherwise, why would we accept things the way they are right now, from our political representation to the continued existence of a royal family? But I'm interested in the flip side of these ideas. For our next instalment, I'm going to shift my focus from the top of the tree and look instead at the literal grassroots by heading to the countryside to explore how these legacies of slavery have shaped our relationship to the very ground we walk upon. If you enjoyed this show, you may like other podcasts by the team. Just type Broccoli Productions in your favourite podcast app to discover more. Human Resources was written by me, Moya Lothian McLean. Our editor and producer is Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Dr. Alison Bennett and Arisa Lumba. Production assistant is Rory Boyle. Social assets by Forward Slash. Sound design by Lex Ademora. This is a Broccoli Production. <laughs>